Today's scripture reading is John 16, 16 through 24. A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are talking is this is what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world but excuse me, yeah, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has so sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Thank you, Candice. Church, if you want to follow along, um, we'll be in John chapter 16, the passage she just read. For those who may be just recently joining us, we've been walking through the Gospel of John now for some months, and we're in the section of John, sometimes labeled the farewell discourse. In this section, Jesus is addressing his select few, his faithful followers, the ones that he has been pouring his life into over the last three years, and now he is pouring out his heart to them before he departs to the cross. And really in the story of uh, the Gospel of John, he's just hours away from that. And at this point... We've seen last week that Jesus, though he is departing, he is promising them that he is going to send them a parting gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is a gift that is more than just a gift you and I might give. This is the gift that guarantees the people of God will continue to live, to thrive, and can grow and fulfill the mission that God has given them. It's the spirit that will bring conviction to the world, the spirit that will encourage and empower God's people. It's an incredible gift. But as incredible as that gift is, the reality is that there is still something more powerful, more amazing that Jesus has yet to promise. And that's what we get into in the passage that was just read. It's this transformative reality that will change the way the followers of Christ view sorrow, view grief, view all the trials of this world forever and ever and ever. And with that said, what I want to do is I want to pray and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning recognizing our desperate need of you. Lord, we cannot string two words together apart from your grace, Lord. And certainly I can't speak in such a way that these people who have the Holy Spirit will be edified and grow in their vision and truth and understanding of the hope and the joy that we have in Christ apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we pray, Lord, right now that you would bless the preaching of your word for the glory of your Son and the good and the joy of his people. And we ask that now in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
1873, a, a man got on a boat to cross from America to England. And um, most likely, I imagine, this man was very heavy-hearted. He was sober as he was crossing the ocean, looking at the waves, because this man, over the last three years, had had his entire life shattered. This man lost his four-year-old son to scarlet fever in 1870. He had a massive fire, destroyed much of his wealth and his property less than a year later. And if all that weren't enough, just over the last few months, his children had taken a transatlantic boat and that his four children, Diana, 11, Margaret, 9, Elizabeth, 5, and Tanetta, 2, had all died after a ship had struck their boat and 226 people and all four of his remaining children had been killed, drowned at sea. And it was as he was passing the spots where they had all drowned that the man, Horatio Spafford, went to his cabin and penned the now famous words to the song, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. What I want to ask you this morning is this question. How can this man write such words? Is this merely beautiful hymnody, but it is not a reality? Or is there something to the Christian faith that gives rock-solid, deep, meaningful joy. And I, I want to maybe even clarify when he says, it is well with my soul, that might not sound like joy, but when you've lost your entire family, we don't expect you to dance. There is something deep within that says, it is well with my soul, and that is the joy that the Lord brings in the midst of sorrow. The question we have to ask, and the question I want to pose before you this morning is, is that a reality for you? Because I believe that the text that we just read is a text that promises where Jesus makes clear that he has finally secured for his people for all time joy. And yet, that is a joy that they still have to fight for. And I, I think... This is an incredibly timely passage because as I'm looking around the room and seeing the faces of so many people who are dealing with trials, <laughs> that are dealing with suffering, people that have lost spouses, people that are dealing with sickness, people that are struggling, I think this is an, a timely word for everyone at all times, but particularly for us this morning. And I don't think in any way, shape, or form it's wrong or unrealistic to suggest to you no matter what storm you are walking through or what storm you are sailing through or what trials you are walking through or what sorrows that you have endured that it is not only possible but promised that you can walk in joy. 
But to do that, to fight for this joy, we have to cling to three truths about this unshakable joy that Jesus gives us. Three truths that we must cling to to be able to walk in unshakable joy amidst sorrows. The first is this. We need to understand the foundation of our joy. The foundation of our joy. You see, up to this point in John, Jesus' primary focus has been on his departure, right? He has spoken of his departure again and again and again and again and again. He's told them he's going away, that he's going to the Father. He's told them what he expects of them to do what? Love one another as I have loved you, right? A C on that one. We'll give you another opportunity to to do better as we move on. Um, And he's told them what they can expect from the world, that they are going to be hated in light of his name. He's told them lots of things. He's told them that he's going to send them help. But the idea of, the idea that this will not be the last time they see him has not really been the focus. Or what's going to happen necessarily after he goes away has not been the focus until now. So as we pick up in verse 16, we read this. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Now, I'm going to admit, this is not the clearest way to talk about the resurrection. Anybody with me? Okay. It's really clear that Jesus is trying to be, or intending to be, not trying, he's doing what he's trying to do, which is being vague. He says, a little while you will see me no longer. Now, he's used this, le- this language again and again earlier, and every time he's do- talked about it, he's referred to the fact that they won't see him anymore because he's going to die, he's going to go in the tomb, and so he will be removed from their vision. But then he says, then in a little while, and you will see me. And because of what he's referencing before, this has to be referring to his resurrection. That seeing that he's referring to is this idea, again, not that Jesus was going to be spiritually visible to them, not that they was going to live in their hearts, but that his body was going to rise from the dead. And just they had, as they had seen him with his eyes while he was on earth, and then he was removed from their eyes while he was in the tomb, he was going to be back before them alive again, and they would see him and he would see them, which is a critical part of that. Now, my question to you is, why say it like this? And I I think the best answer is because Jesus is less concerned here with explaining the details of how and when this will happen, and he's more concerned with making sure they understand that though he's going away, he is coming again. It's like sometimes when I talk to my, I'm about to walk out the door, like when I walk out the door various times, that's my kid's favorite opportunity to make sure that they know all that I'm about to do when I walk out the door. Where are you going? Who are you going to see? What are you going to be doing? And normally, just to give you a heads up into my parenting, I don't answer all those questions. I just say, I'm going to be back. Right? I'll be back soon. Right? That's all that you need to know. That's the most important information. And so despite the vagueness, though, I think this is clearly an important point for Jesus because the preceding 
Three verses repeat this basic idea three more times. Follow with me. Uh, the next verse says, So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will see me no longer, and a little while you will not see me, and, and, and a little while you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. And so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourself? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Now, when you read this and it sounds really clunky in English and you're like, why doesn't he just get straight to the point? You need to understand what, what John is doing is he is like hitting rewind and then play. Rewind and then play. Rewind and play so that you don't miss the important point that he's making that Jesus knew that when he went, he was coming again and he wanted everyone who was hearing it, reading this to understand that Jesus knew that was going to happen, that that was Jesus' plan because though the disciples on that side of the resurrection had no idea what he was talking about, us on the post-resurrection side know exactly what he's talking about and so we can know that what that says right there is just as much for your benefit as it was for theirs he wanted this point to be clear now why does he want this to be so clear and though it's not stated here it'll become clear eventually the reason is this, because his coming again after his death is the foundation for everything else he's about to say. It's the reason that we have a Christian hope. It's the linchpin of our peace. And it is the foundation upon which all Christian joy rests. There is no hope. There is no joy. There is no peace in Christianity if Jesus did not rise from the dead. Now, why is that? Because this man, Jesus, had made incredible promises about what his death was going to accomplish and about what his life was going to accomplish and about what he was going to offer to those that came to him. And if he does not rise from the dead, if he does not come back, then he cannot fulfill any promise he has made. And so, therefore, he may be a well-intentioned Savior, he may be a good guy, but he is impotent to do for you what he has promised to do. But if he is raised from the dead, he is king. And whatever promises he made you, he can fulfill. This is the reason we can have hope today because 2,000 years ago we believe a man was not just crucified but that he rose from the grave. And we see all of the New Testament look back onto this as the foundation of their hope. For example, 1 Corinthians 5, 15, 17 through 19, Paul writes, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Why are they still in their sins? Because the death didn't take, because Jesus didn't come back, and so he couldn't do what he promised to do. But he says, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Death is final. Death wins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, church, before we can talk about joy, before we can talk about hope, before we can talk about peace, we need to understand the theological foundation upon which it rests. And all joy rests on the foundation of Jesus' resurrection. Now, what I don't want to do is for this to remain 
a bit of theological lumber. So if you're going to pass like an orthodoxy test, you're like, yes, I believe Jesus was raised from the dead. And yet it brings you no joy. You see, our joy is rooted in the reality of a physical resurrection. Jesus didn't ask us to root our joy and our hope in wishful thinking, but in the historical reality of his resurrection. That is why the witnesses of the early church came and bared witness to his empty tomb, to his rising from the dead. Why? Because that was the only thing they cared about? No, but because that's what validated everything else that man said. We are not just here for a crucified Savior. We are here because of a resurrected Savior. And I also want to say this. If you are here and you are investigating Christianity or you are, grew up religious or you grew up in church, we are so glad you're here. But I want to make this clear point. This is a critical piece of information that you need to recognize. Christianity is not simply is Jesus a nice guy? Did I believe he exists? The question is, did he rise from the dead? And if he rose from the dead, which I know is a miraculous thing, and I know it's hard to believe, but if he did, that is the man that needs all of your hope, who can take all of your pain and all of your burden. For the Christian joy is not primarily focused then upon and founded upon immediate circumstances and situations, but upon eternal spiritual realities. And I know that sometimes the, resu the resurrection seems like one of those things that I need to get excited about one time a year on Easter Sunday, and that doesn't mean a whole lot between now Sunday and the next Sunday, but the resurrection, y'all, is the thing that makes every trial that you are dealing with, every suffering that you're walking through, every decline into sickness that you are looking at, that gives you the ability to have joy. It is the only thing that can sustain the weight of your trials. And as we'll see next, it doesn't just sustain the weight. Oh man, it swallows them up. Our second point this morning is the thing that we need to cling to is the promise of a joy that swallows sorrow. The promise of a joy that swallows sorrow. So now what happens is Jesus has gotten this question from these people. They don't know what he's talking about. And they are waiting for a straight answer. And Jesus does not answer their question in a straight way, per usual in the Gospel of John. He does it in a different kind of way by addressing the need or the impact that his going and his coming will have on them. As opposed to clarifying what he means, he says, guess what? This is what you need to know. In verse 20, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. But the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So again, Jesus begins with this weighty, truly, truly, I say to you. Again, that's Jesus' way of saying, listen up. What I'm about to say is really, really, really important. And then he says, you will weep and lament. He wants them to know that when he dies, they will grieve and they will cry and they will feel lost and at the same time, when they are in their deepest grief, the world, which remember from last week is John's shorthand for all of sinful society in opposition to God, the world will rejoice that they've ended this upstart Messiah once and for all. 
Jesus wants them to know and be prepared for this upcoming reality, and it will be a deep, dark, and oppressive sorrow. And I think in context, he is talking specifically to people that are about to see their Savior crucified, and they don't exactly know what's coming next, even though Jesus has made it clear. But I do think today, one of the things this reminds us of is that in the world, follower of Christ, you will have sorrow. <laughs> that is not, should not be a strange thing. You will have trials. You will suffer. Things will not be good for you. And that should not shock us because Jesus here is saying explicitly that you will weep and lament. And as I, again, scan the room and I think about so many of you, various levels of pain and struggle and weeping and sorrow that you've endured, I know that in the moment it feels deeply oppressive. I know in the moment it can threaten to swallow you up. I know that in the moment, it feels like it's the only thing happening. I know that it feels more real than anything else. And so you need to hear what Jesus says next. Because as strong as and powerful as that sorrow will be, he wants them to know that it will not last forever. Because as he says next, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And this joy will not simply replace the sorrow. It's going to swallow that sorrow up and overwhelm it. It's going to inundate it. It's going to wash it away. It's going to be like it was never there. As he goes on to explain how they should present, they should view their present sorrow in light of this future joy, he uses this interesting illustration. He begins in verse 21. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, the hour of birth, the hour of anguish. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. Man, what a powerful image. I mean, I cannot, I cannot hear this and, and not think about the reality of the, that what we walked through with our twins. For some of you may know this, like when our twins were, were babies, and I'm not going to talk about you all as adults, just as babies, so don't worry. Um, but, but when they were babies, they, they, we were told right as we were getting to this point that we were kind of getting excited about new life that there was a 66% chance one of them would not make it to delivery. And so we were brand new in the city of Louisville, knew no one, and my wife got put on strict bed dress, which was just totally isolating, no one to kind of walk through what she was feeling. And then on top of that, we were traveling back and forth to Cincinnati Children's Hospital every time praying that there would be two heartbeats, two heartbeats, two heartbeats. And then we got there one time, and they said, guess what, you know, um, we are concerned about what we're seeing with the babies. We need to do an amnio reduction. And for those of you who don't know, they stick a massive needle into the abdomen and pull out a bunch of amniotic fluid. I didn't happen to me, but it didn't look comfortable. <laughs> and then after the amnio, re amnio reduction, we, 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 we kind of continued on, made it to delivery, and there was all the pain of the delivery and all the, the stress, and then there was the finances. It was a mess coming up to it, but all that was eclipsed. The moment we got to hold those twins in our arms, right? Like it was like a distant shadow. It was so worth it. It wasn't like it hadn't happened, but it was like it didn't matter. The joy of holding them in our arms was so much greater 
than the pain that we had walked through for those lasting months. And he uses this analogy not to hold up the glory of childbirth, but he uses as an image that every believer should cling to as they interpret their present sorrows. So he says, so you also, in verse 29, will have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take that sorrow, that joy from you. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take that joy from you. I I just love this. So he recognizes the reality of their sorrow. But he's saying that it's going to be not just replaced, but eclipsed by a greater joy. And then he makes this stunning statement. He says, and no one will take this joy from you. I just think this is so amazing. It's this promise to Jesus' followers both then that he was speaking to and now that no one will take from you your joy. It's our joy forever. No one can take it. For the post-resurrection believer, this is the promise he gives. I I want this quote from Leon Morris I think is super helpful in understanding what he's saying here. He says, the thought is not, of course, that believers will never have sorrow, will never know sorrow. It is rather that after they have come to understand the significance of the cross, they will be possessed by a deep-seated joy, a joy independent of the world. And this is the key phrase, the world did not give it. And so the world cannot take it away. Church, this is the unshakable and eternal joy that Jesus' resurrection gives to those who follow him. No less than to today, no matter the situation, when I, I hear this, I cannot help but think of 1 Peter 1, 6, where, where Peter writes, In this you rejoice, in that this that you rejoice is the hope that you have because of the resurrection. If you go up a few verses and read in verse 3, he says, It's this living hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he says, In that you rejoice. Not this, because he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So how are we to think about our current trials and rejoice? We do it by looking at the reality of the resurrection and the hope that it brings. And now we need to make an important point. And this is where some of you already may be asking the question, Just because no one can take it from you does not mean you can't give it away. Just because no one can snatch it out of your hands, no situation should be able to rip it, that does not mean you can't give it away. And if we allow our eyes our heart, our focus to shift from Christ to our circumstances, it will happen. Just like so many promises in Scripture, this must be claimed by faith. When our minds and hearts are dominated by the thousand wrongs we've suffered, or the little or big injustices, the disappointments, the sufferings, we will give up what is rightfully ours. 
We will give up what is rightfully ours if we think that those things are bigger, are larger, are more powerful than what Christ has already done for you and what he will do for you. You will give it up even though it is yours by virtue of your relationship with a Christ who has returned. And I want you to hear this if you're struggling with that this morning. I'm not saying get over it. Your pain, your sorrow, no big deal. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, I'm not even trying to minimize what you're walking through. I think to do that would be to do exactly opposite what Jesus does here and would be to lying to you as if it doesn't feel like it's the biggest thing in the world. What I am saying is that the joy of Jesus is more sure and it's bigger. And I think part of the, the weight and what God does with suffering is he takes the, the sorrow that we feel and we will understand the joy that Christ being, brings more when we recognize that his joy even outweighs the reality of the depth of sorrow that we may be walking through in the moment. And we must cling to that because he has secured it for us. Now you may be saying right now, I don't feel like I can ever do that. I'm walking through something right now. I'm not enough. Guess what? Jesus knows that. That's why I love where he goes next. And our third point where he explains the way to the fullness of joy. The way to the fullness of joy. I think one of the painful things about when you're talking about joy to people that are sorrowful is it can seem like you're just adding hot coals to the fire, like you're just making them feel worse. What Jesus does here is he is making it very clear that he is not expecting you to stir this up from within, for you to white-knuckle your way into joy. He is wanting you to lay it before him so that he can be your strength. And what he says next makes clear, because the resurrection that is coming is going to shift the relationship that the believer has with the Father and with Him. And He wants you to know that what this shifting relationship means is that there is going to be access that you have that will grant you joy. In verse 23, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He will give it to you. And until now you have asked nothing in my name. In other words, Jesus here is referencing this reality that up to this point, until the death and resurrection of Christ, nobody is coming to the Father in the name of Jesus. Jesus first had to pay for the sins of these people. He had to go to sit at the right hand of the Father. It's not time, but when he goes and he comes and then he goes again and ascends to heaven, he has radically changed the relationship so that they can go directly to the Father and ask things of the Father when they pray in Jesus' name. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that praying in Jesus' names mean you pray for whatever you want and then you say, in Jesus' name? No. <laughs> He's not looking for a way you into prayer. Praying in Jesus' name is praying in light of the sacrificial death of Christ on behalf to be able to give you the right to be able to access that. It's praying that you would be able to operate in line with his will and his purposes. It's praying in Jesus' name. It's praying that God and that Jesus would be glorified in our whole life. And he says, when you pray 
not just lip service in Jesus' name, but so that your life is for Jesus. He says, you can know that he will give it to you. And specifically, he says in the final half of 24, he says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I think the thing that strikes me about this is this is like not the first time the idea of the joy of God's people has come up is that you need to see this church that Jesus and the Father and that the Spirit want you to have joy. They want you to be full of joy. The fullness of our joy is the desire of the Father and the Son. And let me be clear, this is not a promise of deliverance from sorrows and troubles in this world. The preceding verses make that promise sorrow, make that clear, as well as, to be honest, the rest of the New Testament. But it is a promise that they can have the fullness of joy in the midst of the sorrows. How do they do that? By being really, really knowledgeable. By being really smart and really determined and being like, you know, the guy who hits all his New Year's resolutions all year long. They have that kind of determination. Is that how you maintain that joy? No, you do it by being weak. And coming to Christ in your weakness, as he makes so clear, you do it by prayer. The way to fight for fullness of joy then, let me say it explicitly, is by prayer. Not just saying your prayers, but a prayer life that is focused on the glory of Christ. That trusts in him, that loves him, that desires his glory, that longs to be and glorify him. And ultimately recognizes that the only joy and the only way to joy is through Christ. Where we stop looking to the world and our circumstances and so many other things. And trust that Christ will give us the joy that no one else can. Friends, if there is not a better way to encourage you to grow in prayer in 2024, I don't know a better one than this. See, some of us have a lot of Bible reading and Bible knowledge, but it is not matched by a robust prayer life that seeks to see the glory of God in every aspect of our life and continually praise, Lord, where there is change, where I need to change, where there is, I'm too weak, I need you. See, when we read the word of God and we see what God has called us to, it should drive us to our knees because I don't know about you, but when I read this, I was like, how in the world is that possible? I haven't had near the stuff that like Horatio Spafford has had. I haven't near, near the stuff that some of the stuff you have had to deal with. How in the world can we say that you can have fullness of joy, a joy that will never leave you, and it is only through prayer? So let me just ask you this morning, how is your joy? I don't think joy for a Christian is a optional thing. I think the joy of the Lord is our strength. I think we need joy, and I don't think Christians that pursue joy in the Lord are wrong. In fact, I do think it's essential. And I also know at the same time that so many of us struggle with joy. And I would put myself in there. We get dissatisfied. We get disappointed. We feel betrayed. 
So many things happen. But I just want to encourage you that when he makes these promises, he's not asking that, or saying that your life will be perfect, that your life will be free of disappointments, or your life will be free of reasons for sorrow, but in the midst of all that, that you will have joy. And if you would say that this, more, this phrase, fullness of joy, is not an accurate description of you, then let me ask the follow-up question simply this. How's your prayer life? Because I think what I think I want to make sure it's just really clear that God has more joy for you than most of you are walking in. And it's not unavailable to you. But you have to know that he wants to give it and you have to go to him and claim what he's already purchased for you. And so I would just encourage all those who are struggling for joy to go to the Lord seeking his face. But I would also encourage you to let others in so that they know, so that they can lift you up as well. Because it is the prayers of God's people that bring healing to them. And we don't need to isolate ourselves in the middle of all of that sorrow. We need to fight it together. And church, as we close, I just want to say, I'm just, I think I'm burdened this morning because I think as I was writing this, I was thinking about you and I was thinking about the reality of how many of you are dealing with so many difficult things. And I was thinking also about just thanking God for the honesty of these verses because Jesus makes it clear that that the storms of life will bring wave upon wave of sorrow. It simply cannot be escaped. And yet for the one who hopes in a crucified and resurrected Savior, there is this promise of an unshakable joy. A joy that cannot be snuffed out. A joy that can say when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And I do know that it is the desire of the Father and the Son and the Spirit that you, dear Christian, would walk in this kind of joy. A joy that is not devolved of pain, that is not, that is not free of disappointments and sorrow and struggle, but that you would know this joy. And so I would encourage you today, fight for it.